We're not live, so if you say something stupid or if you uh, lose your train of thought or whatever, just just stop talking and I'll cut you out. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> if uh, if your jokes don't land, it's they get cut. That's how it works. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Hacked Off. In today's episode, I have three guests with me, and today we are going to be talking about strategies for business resilience, looking at the longer term strategies. Um, so following on a little bit from uh, the COVID situation that we currently have, but also talking more generically about how to develop a business strategy and some of the options that you've got. The three guests that I have with me shall introduce themselves now. Mark, uh, who are you and how did you end up here? Really good question. Hi, my name is uh, Mark Avery. Uh, I'm an independent chief information security officer and cybersecurity advisor. I've been working in the security industry for around about 23 years, the latter half of which has mainly been uh, working in UK government and critical national infrastructure programs. And currently I'm working with businesses of all shapes and sizes to, to help simplify security and ensure that they can see tangible benefits from the uh, controls they implement. And uh, this hopefully allows them to uh, the, the, allows them the freedom to innovate. Oh, yeah, I'm Kevin Fielder. I'm currently CISO for Just Eat or Just Eat Takeaway, as we're now known. Um, similar to Mark, I've been knocking around tech and tech industry for 20 plus years. Um, done a whole variety of roles in my career, from kind of project roles and implementing kind of tech roles through to building servers, through to supporting internal support stuff. Um, last quite a few years have been purely security focused. Um, and despite my sort of technical background, I'm increasingly passionate about kind of teams, building teams and, and, and people and the people aspects of security and how we can make security a, a kind of really part of the business and, and be seen as an enabling function. Hi there, uh, Sean Atkinson here. Uh, I work with, with Holly, in fact, um, supporting the commercial team. Uh, have worked with Mark on a number of uh, critical national infrastructure projects over the last seven, eight years, but been in tech for 10. So I'm the baby of the group. But cybersecurity has been my main focus, certainly over the last six years. And, and the passion that Kevin shows is, is something that I share as well. So uh, I think this is going to be a good conversation. So what we have set aside today is some questions broadly around, uh, I guess, strategy, business resilience, that kind of thing. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, based on kind of our, our preamble conversation, what I've written down in our show notes for today is open plan offices suck. Um, what do you guys think about open plan offices? And I guess what I'm saying here is, do you think we'll ever go back or have people got the test for remote now? So, uh, so Harley, I think that uh, a number of things are going to change um, as well as just office environments. I think there needs to be some changes to our, to our culture, the way that we travel, um, the way that we um, buy things from, from shops, uh, the way we eat in restaurants. I think a number of um, health and safety issues need to be addressed to build trust, really, in uh, you know, in, in us as consumers and as employees. So, so yes, I think there's definitely going to be some consideration for the way in which office environments are designed and uh, and how it can keep us safe. Yes, I think I think there'll be probably kind of for me pretty certainly for companies that weren't very remote and flexible before, I think there's the, going to be a, a big push to be more kind of flexible and allow more remote working, more flexibility, those kind of things, um, just because everyone's proving, or if you can do it, you're proving you can do it already, right? Um, so I think that that will be here to stay for people where it wasn't necessarily a thing before. Um, and I think 
obviously in the short term there may be changes to offices in terms of if we have a, a, sta a staggered return to work so that you can have sort of more critical people back in the office um, but some sort of social distancing you know who knows what how that's going to look in the short term but in the medium term I'm really hopeful for big changes to kind of office design to allow people to have a, you know, a better balance of quiet spaces and collaborative spaces because I think kind of open offices are, are, are shockingly bad for productivity and getting things done but equally kind of cubicles and just offices is also really bad for collaborations I think there could be some offices that are less full because there's more flexible working to also be much better spaces for creativity and, and getting stuff done. So that sounds like um, certainly from what you're saying there uh, Kev it sounds like there are a lot of benefits to, to, to changing things up a little bit talking about a more collaborative environment and things like that but but what about the risks so if we consider something like uh, physical access pen testing where you know previously we have known who will be working from what location we'll know what hours people generally work you know the, there'll be an office opening hour there'll be an office um, closing hour if we have smaller teams working in the office a lot of people working remotely do you think that'll um, at all increase the security risk so I think in the short term, yes. So one of the things I've actually spoken about recently is the fact that one of the risks we have and, and every organisation has is all of our kind of baseline data is kind of is out the window. So where you had baselines of this is what it all looks like, it's now different in terms of both hours and where people are logging in from, et cetera. However, I think you know, it's probably fair to say most people are creatures of habit. So although that baseline and, and, and normal look different, person X or team X will probably get to a pattern of working that has some similarities over time. Yeah. Um, so it'll be a different baseline, but it'll be Dave works from home, Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays. Jane tends to work from two till 10 because yeah. she's, we'll get those patterns. They'll just be a bit more complex because they'll be a bit more unique and a bit more individual. So we'll just have to kind of get better at uh, individualizing some of those baselines rather than kind of looking at the whole org or, or you know, hundreds of people at once, I think. So maybe some challenges there around threat hunting in terms of no longer having a broad organizational baseline, but your threat hunting team is going to need a lot more information now in terms of who is supposed to be doing what and from where. Yeah, I think we need to be, yeah, it's just, it's just that next level of intelligence, right? How, how you get much better at, at spotting anomalies and, and kind of going down to more team and individual levels for some of these things rather than necessarily um, kind of whole org. And it probably leads to some of the further discussions we'll have today around how you trust behaviors more in terms you know, do I trust you to be doing what you're trying to do right now? That kind of thing. Yeah, so I think just just adding to that, Karen, absolutely, and 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 on that culture thing, um, it's a it's a great opportunity for business leaders to think about the well-being of their staff, and to think about those working assumptions that we've always had, uh, and the culture of an organisation is, as you know, built on those assumptions, and you know, it is the time to be more flexible um, and and build that strategy of working from home or working remotely and allowing people to, you know, make sure that they're delivering what the business requires, but in a way that suits them. So if it is indeed working midnight till 2 a.m. Um, because they need to, to get everything out of the way first and that's their time to relax and it suits their lifestyle, then so be it. Uh, and also that that introduces new opportunities for uh, those people who've never been able to get a job because they couldn't work remotely. And so now if you, if you look at the, um, the way in which, you know, returning parents um, go back to work after, after bringing their children up, you know, uh, often people need a bit more flexibility. You know, they want to be able to work in the morning, 7 a.m. till 9 a.m., drop the kids off at school and then come back and, and work for the rest of the day until 3 p.m. when they need to pick them up again. So it, it opens up a new um, way of working that, that business leaders really need to consider. 
I've, I've always, uh, I mean, I work from home anyway, so the, the massive change that a lot of people saw wasn't so much a, a big deal for me. I think the, the biggest deal was obviously organising childcare, um, which wasn't actually, you couldn't do it. Um, you, I've got a very small child that's very uh, good at finding danger and you, you've got to obviously watch them uh, constantly. So between myself and the, and the partner, you've got to make sacrifices and, and work a little bit later at night. For me, as long as I've got an internet connection, a phone and a laptop, I'm, I'm more than happy. One of the things that I think will change for me personally is, is the amount of travel that I do after this. I used to be able to work really well with a privacy screen on a on a train because you know there was more signal on the moon than there was on a on a Virgin Pendolino. But I, I don't really see the the necessity to 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 travel quite as much, and and I think people will understand and appreciate that following um, once we come out of lockdown that time uh, four five six hours traveling might be better spent actually just talking on the phone and then getting getting some of the job done um i think that'll probably be one of the things that changes most for for a commercial person after after this ends i think uh, i think sean you've maybe uh, just briefly pointed at something i was considering on an earlier podcast episode which is uh, the security risk of the other people in your house so you mentioned, you know, um, having a child there or children messing around with um, laptops and things like that might be a frustration, probably not a security risk. But, um, you know, have organizations considered things like how do you have a confidential conference call when you're in a house full of family? I'll say this one. Um, so children will always find caps lock and will always put the wrong password in multiple times. And then you've got a, a separate issue that you've got to contact IT and actually get back in, et cetera, et cetera. That, that might look like somebody's trying to do something um, possibly malicious from outside your organization, but it's just a one and a half year old boy. <laughs> um, the second, second thing is obviously that we we're all in security we 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 live security we we understand security we, i've got an office where it's quite far away from most of the communal areas in the house and and i have some quite confidential conversations but for, for people that don't live and breathe this type of world that's not a consideration i don't think uh and hasn't been a consideration uh, until the, the likes of kevin pushes that message out be mindful where you're having conversations. I would never have a, a confidential conversation on a train, for example. Um, but that's because that's been drilled into me for, for the last eight, nine, ten years. Um, lots of other people within organisations might not have that awareness that you, you can't go for your walk on uh, your, your daily walk and have a conference call because there are people around you. I'm taking and conference calls you're... from the garden as well. Possibly, possibly. That's another uh, another thought. Kevin said it before. Yeah. Um, we, we sit in the garden, and, and who, who around you can hear you? Um, it, it's it's a sort of precedent that no one's probably had to think of previously. Saying that though, there's a lot of people who've been working from home from years who have been saying, we've been doing this forever, we've addressed these risks, these are well known. But the problem isn't them, of course, it's the staff who've just moved to working from home. Yeah, and it may also bring it to the forefront, right? Because a lot of organisations haven't necessarily thought about it, I think. So yeah. you have working from home, but, you know, and I, you know, I'll work from cafes, I'll work from anywhere, but you've got to be mindful of, like you say, who's listening. So, you know, I, I've done quite a few calls from my garden, but luckily, well, I don't know if it's luckily because it's, it's bad because of the pandemic, but the pub next door is closed mm -hmm. um, and the house next door, the other side is um, currently vacant. So there's no one that can hear so i'm quite yeah. comfortable at the moment obviously when things reopen i have to be more mindful who's in the pub but but i think a lot of all haven't thought about it 
So, you know, we have people, you know, how many people have you had times do you have execs or senior people or whoever are dialing in from airport lounges yeah. or from you know, other stuff? And it's normal practice. And have we really considered the kind of the operational security around that and being mindful of who can listen? Yeah, I think there's um, there's, there's a more of an alignment here to, to health and safety um, that, that's required. We've all probably conducted occupational health assessments if we're considered as home worker. I've done it many, many times. And, you know, if you need support from the from the uh, the organisation that you work for, you can get a new monitor, you can get um, uh, a new chair, for example. And um, I think now organisations need to think about that home work, working provision a lot more. And, you know, we've always had that information in awareness programmes and, and we've, we've always reminded people to work safely from home, look after their laptop, don't let children use it if it's a sensitive device, etc. But actually, I think it needs to be more of a, a regulated um, strategy now uh, by businesses. And by the way, Sean, thank you for um, for adding a new type of threat actor into some of my clients' risk assessments. I haven't really thought about uh, children as a separate threat actor before, but thank you. <laughs> I, I, was, I, was li- I was literally just going to go one, uh, one further from uh, your uh, sentences there around the word safety. Um, so I remember sitting, I don't know whether you remember, Mark, sitting in a meeting uh, a, a few years ago where I accidentally said safety instead of security. <laughs> and we, we saw a, a whole room light up. Um, it, it was a room full of people that weren't used to being told how to uh, build with secure by design in, mm-hmm. in their uh, embedded systems principles. It was built by a, a number of people who I wouldn't say or a number of organizations, sorry, that, that I wouldn't say even had a CISO, let alone an information security officer. And when I accidentally said safety, I could see light bulbs um, go above their heads because they've they've been regulated by health and safety for 30, 35 years. And it was like, oh, I need to make that safe on the internet. It's a connected device. How do I make this safe on the internet? And Mark, Mark seems like he remembers that, that um, yep. fraudulent slip, should I say. Um, <laughs> But it's using the terminology that if people are told that you can't do something, they they generally either don't do it or push against it. But if you can explain why they shouldn't be doing it, why talking in your garden could give away confidential information because you're not enclosed, you're not in in your office environment, you're not in in the home, in fact, I think people will realise that actually if a conversation starts to become something that that is either intellectual property or something that realistically you or your company would not want going to somebody else, it doesn't matter who's sat next door listening to it. They might be absolutely nothing to do with what you might do, what you might might be be doing in the next five years, but they also might be a competitor. Not everybody knows their neighbours. I think one of the things that this also brings to to light is how... I guess stupid and skewed some of the kind of security news type reporting is as well. So you probably all remember there was a bit of a phase of don't plug your stuff into charge at the airport because you can get hacked by dodgy USB chargers. Um, but there wasn't any talk about don't talk about company secrets at the airport or who's looking over your screen. And what's more likely, someone here overhearing something secret or you having some magically hacked USB port at an airport that manages to breach any security controls on your machine. I think this is this is a big thing here, and it, and it comes up a lot in, in pen testing when we're trying to explain risk to customers, but it's um, impact versus prevalence, right? It's like, yeah. how bad would this be if it, if it went wrong, but how likely is it to go wrong? 
yeah it's that it's that thing right it sounds really sensational if someone owns your laptop right but if that's like one in several hundred million or whatever but the chances of someone overhearing you talking about something that should be confidential and then mentioning it to someone else at an airport are quite high yeah i, I, th- I think from from my perspective there's there's an awful lot of um fairy dust unicorn tears products out there that claim to do an awful lot and and where where we bring the conversation back to is is how do we teach people to be sensible with the information that they share and, and where they share it because no product or tool will ever capture say voice conversations if you're having a conversation in an airport then you know i, I don't want to name any particular product but it's not going to either block that or, or stop it or report it um, I think that's where it becomes slightly more a security awareness issue. That, that's a difficult one because people are generally not mindful of, of, of where they are or what they're saying. I think there's also um, a, a balance there, Sean, that needs to be considered that in some environments, um, within an office environment traditionally, and this is back to previous assumptions, um, is that, and, I, and I've worked in environments like this, and you, you would think that they were very sensitive and and needed to be secure but actually the way that they work internally their culture is one of open sharing of information okay and um actually that that enables them to do their job a lot more effectively and so there's this this risk now uh, not a risk it's 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 a balance that needs to be recognized and considered by organizations that actually without that secure environment where people can openly talk about things it's de- a definite culture shift to making people aware that there are no limitations if you work from home. And as we know, a huge amount of the workforce are working from home right now. And and I think it was Gartner that reported a couple of weeks ago um, that 88% of the UK working population is working from home right now. And so um, I think the risk has increased, but organisations just need to recognise that and, and help their staff to understand what has changed. I think there's a there's a good example of this. I, I saw a photograph recently uh, on social media of the the inside of number ten and and uh, facing outwards towards the door. Uh, and by the door, uh, there, there is supposedly a sign that says, uh, "Please cover any documents you may be photographed." You know, a, as you leave number ten there. So this is like uh, breaching onto um, security awareness training, right? It's just a different kind of a thing we've done forever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's just getting people to think about new stuff, I suppose. And it's, I guess, the the difference, um, or the slight difference, is probably the how relaxed you get when you're chatting. So when you're in an office and you're working, you're kind of in work mode. Yeah. If you're taking those calls from a cafe or your garden or whatever, you're probably a bit more relaxed. So it's kind of getting that cultural piece in where people realise that yes, you're you're at home, but you still have to be mindful of of you know who's listening and you know and it's not just necessary because like it's nation state or whatever just you know you happen to mention that your business did really well trading last night and then your neighbors tweet that and then suddenly the impact you know share prices get impact or trading it you know stuff like that you know fairly simple innocuous comments can very easily cause kind of material changes to businesses i'd absolutely agree with that i think um particularly with the social media effects that we've seen uh over the last 10 years people the, the fake news thing is a is a big thing we, we we'd probably like to discuss that a little bit later but um i think more importantly that the news travels fast and things get affected much much quicker now than than they ever did and even even like you say kevin if somebody overhears something it it might have sounded really far-fetched years ago but it, it just isn't now you know it isn't like the 
the American film companies were predicting cybersecurity breaches 20 years ago. They just put ideas in people's heads, in my opinion, you know, drones flying in Judge Dredd. It, again, it just made it, it look like something that was possible rather than, oh, the American film producers are predicting the future. You know, Trump's going to be president on The Simpsons. It, for me, again, it's just putting ideas in people's heads. So the more that we 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 do that, there's inherently going to be considerations around what that might might mean in future. It isn't quite as far-fetched, I don't think. If, if, if we're thinking about it, somebody else is probably thinking about it as well. So what other changes have we seen uh, following everyone moving from home then? So you talked about uh, security awareness with, you know, being careful of, of where you're talking and things like that. But um, how many organizations have had their VPN concentrator set on fire due to capacity and have had to make network changes? Um, what's, what's the risks there? So I guess it's, it's yes, it, it probably is um, depends on what type of organization you have and what, what kind of position you're in previously. So um you know for us we we had a lot of home working and mobile working already um so we did have to scale up our vpn concentrator but we could do that in amazon so it wasn't you know it was work but it, we could do it safely and, and and securely because it was work that we're used to because we're an agile organization mm -hmm. um, i think if you either weren't used to home working at all and had to set this up from scratch or you did a little bit of it but weren't really set up for it um especially if you were a I don't know if traditional is the right word, but more waterfall-based organizations. So you did a different way of project delivery than we do. Um, you might struggle more because you, instead of being agile, you're you're rushed. I think we, we talked about this um, a bit yesterday in, in prep for this, didn't we? So it's the difference between kind of agility and rushed. Yeah. Um, I think if you're used to agile working, you're used to scaling quickly, you're used to remote working, you're probably in a reasonably good place still. Um, if you are not used to that and you've had to rush things through and make big changes to how people work and how people connect, um, you probably should go back and review all of that just to make sure there wasn't any mistakes and you've kind of covered how you're doing authentication, how you're checking it's the right things, how you're doing posture checking, whatever it is, um, to make sure you didn't miss anything because you kind of rushed something um, in order to keep the business working. Definitely the right thing to do because if you've got a choice between carrying some risk and not working, you probably want to carry that risk temporarily, but um, let's then make sure that you haven't forgotten that and you go back and, and, and lock it down. Now, now, now it's hopefully working and you've got a bit of time to, to now improve how it's working. I think uh, a big thing there is is making decisions under duress, right? So like that's the rushing side of things. But give you an example, I was working with a company um, a little while ago when this was uh, still quite a new problem. And, and they were looking at uh, sending their workforce to work from home. But the problem they had was everybody in the office used a desktop. So their decision from that was to procure a laptop for every member of staff because the idea of using a desktop at home just never came up. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge change, right? Uh, and, well, it's, and it's, it's a new build for every member of staff, yeah. Well, I, think, I, think, I think we were talking about it the, the other day, Holly, where, where we, we basically turned around and said, who put a pandemic on their business continuity plan or their disaster recovery plan uh, six months ago? We've all uh, talked to people about planning for floods, for fires, um, for being out of the office for maybe one, two, maybe three, maybe a month, uh, you know, no one I don't think has ever thought that we would have to be out of the office for, for, for six months, maybe, you know, an indefinite number of time because we, we haven't an idea as to where we can go back or how we can go back. And I think that was a big thing for, for me to consider when, when advising customers that we have to plan for, for near enough everything now because it's now happened. Mark, you didn't so, have children on your disaster recovery plan. Did you have pandemic? 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> we we certainly um, in, in previous organisations and for a lot of our clients, if if you're going to do risk management well, then you would consider that. And I've definitely seen um, uh, pandemics on on many risk registers. The question in my head is the the assumption around the likelihood. So as you quite rightly say, Sean, is that it's sometimes assumed that okay, we might be able we. we we might be out of the office for a week or two, or we might lose certain key members of staff. Um, I've worked in organisations where our disaster recovery policy was to issue everybody with laptops and everybody can go and work from home or, or Starbucks or any other coffee shop or restaurant. And, and actually that, that, that was based upon a number of assumptions that those things were uh, available. And, and now we see that they're not. So there's something definitely needs to change in assessing the worst case scenario there's a really tragic um uh, story from the 1972 olympics i think it was uh, in munich where there was a number of scenarios discussed in the planning activity and most of them were discounted that they weren't very likely and, and unfortunately one of them involved um a palestinian uh, terrorist group um, uh, getting access to the israeli campus uh, in munich Unfortunately, that came 11 of their athletes um, were, were murdered. And it's a grim story, but actually the point here is that history and the context around us today, um, also known as threat intelligence in some areas, um, should actually be paid attention to. And we should use that to think about that worst case scenario. And if it does have a real impact, for example, people losing their lives, then it, then scenario planning for that should really be a consideration for organisations, as small as it might be. You know, we do need to think about um, those, those the likelihood of them, the potential worst case impact, and you know, really make sure that we've done enough to to, to consider whether or not we need to put any additional actions in place. Yeah, I think for me, it's, you know, Mark summed it up really well, to be honest. But it's. It's the global and length of na global nature of how, how long it will last. I think are the kind of big differences. So a lot of people have, um, you know, an, an office or even a country may close down if you're kind of multinational. Um, and again, usually it's assumed whatever. I don't think anyone expected to have a every country they're operating in closes all offices for you know two, three, four months. I think that's the it's the scale and, and length of it that, that's the impact because you know if you've got offices in more than one country. If one country closes, you've still got office locations open. You've still got people that you can have on office phones and whatever else if people want to call you, all of those kind of things. So, so yeah, I think it's the scale that probably the scale and duration that probably wasn't in most people's plans um, or certainly not something they genuinely planned for versus kind of shutting an office or a country for two weeks or whatever. What about just from a from a lower level than that? So what about things like organizations making changes that were considered, you know, an exception was granted due to, you know, um, the COVID situation. And, and now we're finding out that maybe those exceptions are becoming the new norms. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we we create security policy and, and standards and, and rules within an organization based upon the perceived risk. Right. And and at the end of the day the the technology that we implement the processes that we implement should all be focused on making the business work and in these unprecedented times those policies need to change and so i think you know security risk should help um, enable some of those business decisions both now and in the future and 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 yes absolutely where previously certain 
video conferencing facilities weren't made available to staff to help them do their job. I think as security professionals, we need to take a look at that and say, look, have we hindered the business in any way? Um, can we help the business moving forward and enable those kinds of controls whilst at the same time considering the security risk and, and suggested mitigations for that, most definitely? Yeah, so it's where those, and it's assessing those exceptions, right? So where something is an acceptable risk for, you know, a week, a month, um, is it still acceptable now and how do how do we mitigate it in, in the new world? So, yes, like you say, it's how we enable the business to now work in a mobile remote manner safely rather than um, be effectively an office based business that's working from home with a whole bunch of exceptions and risks that shouldn't really be acceptable over over a longer period. I think it's, it's mainly around consideration, isn't it, Kevin? As long as you've considered it and you've put proportion, sorry, proportionate measures in place that makes sense to the business to to continue but also if the the worst did happen as mark suggested it you, you can hand on heart turn around and say we've considered it we've put all the controls around it that we thought was sensible at the time with the resources that we have with the, the investment and budget that we we hold and with the actual risk it posed to us in terms of what we've deemed it on the risk register i think you, you know, you, you're going to stand up to somebody turning around and saying you, you were negligent or you've just uh, done something in a rush, for example. I think uh, maybe one of the things that we're kind of presuming, but uh, people who've never really worked on the strategy side of things might not understand is, you know, when, when you say you need to consider these risks, I, I, I think there's an implicit, you need to document the reasons why there, so that when it comes to reviewing this, you can check if you know those reasons are still valid. It isn't a case of looking through the risks and then you know taking actions or not taking actions. It's a case of like, you need to write down what you've decided. It's that process, right? So I mean, um, much as it's, it can be a frustrating part of security, one of the things that we, we learn as, as we progress is that it's not our train set and very rarely is the organization's business doing security. So a lot of our role is making sure people are aware of a risk um, and the options they have to accept it, treat it, what various treatment options there are so they can make informed decisions. Obviously we can guide that down the route we think is best, but we also know that at times organizations will take risks we we don't think are awesome or they'll they'll take a choice that isn't our first choice, um, but they'll, they'll our job is done if they do that with their eyes open and in a way that they, they understand any risk they're accepting in order to kind of progress the business forwards. Yeah, I think I think that risk is, is sometimes perceived as a bit of an art, but actually you can you can gain a huge amount by just having a sensible conversation and, and having that regularly as well. Um, there's lots of information around us. We all see um, uh, mostly true news, not necessarily fake news, um, but there's lots of information comes out daily on different vulnerabilities, different scenarios that are happening around the world in, in various contexts. And it's taking all of that information regularly and thinking about whether the likelihood of the risks that you've already considered uh, has increased or not. And, and that's when you need to start taking action. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's one of those things, especially kind of a time like this, right? It's easy to kind of forget, accept risk day one isn't necessarily accepted risk month three or whatever. So yeah. having a process where you recheck the risks either over time or when things change is, is I think, really important to, to make sure that you're not getting to a point where you've got far more risk than you think. I think another one that we, a lot of organisations struggle with, you know, on the broader risk piece is a bit like, um, you know, Holly will know this from kind of pen testing and stuff, but where you kind of chain things together. So obviously we talk about chain of vulnerabilities, right, where kind of three or four mediums actually smashes the castle down, even though there's no highs. So you have to consider how they could be linked together. 
Um, the same can happen to risk, right? You can get a point where you've accepted quite a lot of low risks, but then you suddenly realise you've got a thousand low risks in one system and it's it's just riddled, yeah. um, even though there's nothing that's jumped up to this must go to the audit committee because it's a 5-5 five, five and it's terrible. Yeah, that's the that's the big thing because we're talking there again about impact. But there's also uh, the the prevalence and the likelihood. I've got a really good example from that uh, from the testing side of things uh, from from actually the Equifax breach, where um, following the breach, one of the actions that they took was to increase the number of call center staff that they had. So they they hired fifteen hundred more call center staff to deal with the perceived idea that you know customers uh, members of the public are going to be calling up to see if they've been. Uh, impacted. So they addressed that risk of the increased number of calls by recruiting more um, team members. The, the thing that they hadn't considered in terms of chaining risk or chaining vulnerabilities together was uh, there was a major hurricane and it shut the call center down entirely, shut two of their locations down. Yeah, so, so, so that, I think I think for me that's a, it's one of the things that, you know, and it's, it's a hard thing to do because, you know, maintaining a sensible risk register at a is difficult just in the first place then then repeated going back to it periodically adds another level of layer of work and then kind of trying to assess kind of what do these 50 risks against one system actually add up to is, is another level so it's, you know it's it's hard work um and i guess you kind of get into kind of how mature is your risk process but i think it's if you're if you've got a risk register you should start thinking about looking at um kind of how things could be linked together and is this one system that's never kind of got above the power pit because there's no serious risks still a source of serious risk if there's a lot of low risk in it. I think the other thing to consider right now is that um, as well as um, likelihoods changing recently um, in light of the situation, there's a massive shift in, in the way of working. And so actually, if you had a risk register um, two months ago, um, some of those risks will fundamentally have changed. Um, and, and so if you haven't done it already, um, then, then it is time to to sit down and have a conversation with with the business leaders and, and say, look, what what has changed and is is our risk register currently still valid? It's it's nearly about predicting the future at the moment, isn't it? And it's it's driven that to the forefront of people's minds is is that what's the worst that can happen type question and just playing out those scenarios just to see how your infrastructure stands up, how how you would manage that situation from either a country level or globally as, as Kevin has to do and just understanding that if the worst actually happened where do we where do we stand and, and, and what would we do in those circumstances? I think it's not only a case of predicting the future although that is valid I think a part of it as well as um, what Mark was saying there of are you operating on a risk register that's outdated you know are you operating on historic data for the current situation? Absolutely. Why do we need a risk register anyway, though? Because cyber insurance is going to save us all, right? No, I think I think uh, I don't think cyber insurance is a bad thing because insurance is a perfectly valid way to treat risk, um, especially for risks you can't like fix or treat in some way. Um, but it's it's a bit like compliance doesn't equal security, insurance doesn't equal safety. So you shouldn't rely on insurance over fixing issues. You should use it as another layer of thing for issues you can't fix for whatever reason or for things you can't control. You know, like pandemic being something, you know, I don't know if you can insure for a pandemic, but there's certainly things outside of your control that you can do your best to hedge against by having, you know, multiple locations and et cetera, et cetera. But where, where you get to the point when it's not 
financially or in any sensible way feasible to deal with something that's where insurance comes in isn't it same as with cars or whatever you don't want to have an accident you learn how to drive you maintain your car you get it serviced and mot'd you keep the tires in good condition all of those things so that you're as safe as possible but should you have an accident you also have insurance to deal with that after you've done all of the good things that you should be first yeah I, th- I think it's a complex area but as you say kev it, it's important to make sure that that you've got the right type of insurance and any assumptions that you've made that it will pay out in certain circumstances you really do need to validate i've reviewed insurance policies for for our clients previously uh who have all of their systems in the cloud and yes whilst you have active active uh, availability between certain zones in certain technologies actually your insurance policy might not pay out if there's some kind of force majeure um, service provider failure type um, clause and so it's really important to, to to validate that yes where you can treat risk using cybersecurity insurance that you get somebody qualified to to validate that assumption yeah absolutely and i think it's also good the other way as well in terms of i think one of the reasons outside of kind of people using insurance for um a reason not to do security which is bad the other way it gets a bad press is because i think cyber insurance is relatively new it's not that new but compared to you know buildings insurance or whatever it's a new thing and because you know the you usually have things like you know acts of terrorism and acts of war and stuff aren't insurable you know whether it's your building getting blown up or whatever else right but it gets a bit more vague with with cyber insurance um so say you have a what was a state-sponsored piece of malware gets out into the world how long after it gets in the world is it just malware versus still being a state-sponsored thing um so i think there's a lot of kind of gray in there that makes it more challenging and probably gives it a bad name because you'll have companies not understanding it and having appropriate insurance or conversely insurers using those vagaries to get out of paying out because it was an act of war or an act of terrorism when it clearly wasn't so so it's it's got to mature quite a lot of that space before it becomes as as trusted and as understood as some other types of insurance there's a great difficulty there as well with um the attribution piece right so it's an act of war according to whom because whilst uh, organizations like the NSA, organizations like the NCSC have commented on some actions, they, they tend to uh, hedge their words and say things like, this is very likely to be a nation state attack. And in many instances, they, they don't comment at all. So, so who's making the rules, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that, that, that's the, you know, as a company who's paying for this, that makes it kind of a really hard space to be in because you kind of go, yeah, we think we've got the right amount of cyber insurance and we think we've got the right numbers insured and for the right things. Um, but until this, you know, clear case law and maturity there, um, there's always the risk that you'll get hit by something you think you're insured for and you're not just because the insurance company may claim it isn't or may be able to prove it's not covered or or you haven't understood the insurance or whatever. So I think, yeah, so I think it's a it's a risky space still. Um, and I guess it comes back to let's do good security first. Right. So the better your security is and the more appropriate security is, the less you need to rely on things like insurance, hopefully. So you uh, you drew a comparison earlier about, uh, you know, you mentioned car insurance in the context of cyber insurance. Car insurance is mandatory. Do you think cyber insurance ever will be? Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, oh, good uh, question. I guess maybe where life and limb are at stake. So um, if someone could be severely harmed from your, if, if your service is, is out, um, then yeah, it's probably appropriate for it to be mandatory, so that if if for example you know someone is is seriously injured or 
loses their home or whatever because your company is breached, you having some insurance so they at least get some some insurance out of it as opposed to, you know, to, to make up for it is, is probably a good thing. Um, I guess that gets really interesting though because then what if I lose my job because my company was breached and goes out of business? Um, so, you know, I guess, yeah, there's an awful lot of different people that could be harmed by companies um, being breached or not having appropriate security. So, yeah, um, I'm not a big fan of mandating things or regulation, but it, it probably makes sense that in some way, people can't end up losing their homes because you had bad security or people can't lose, you know, life or limb or whatever else because of your, because of, because of poor security. Right. I think that um, it, it could become mandatory in certain circumstances that you described there, Kevin. Absolutely. I think, although what you, what you've said already is that it's still fairly immature. We, we there are limited case studies about payouts, um, equally, I've seen insurance policies that commit the world, and they'll, you know, they'll get you back up and running and, and pay it for whatever, including GDPR fines. Um, but, but actually, um, it, it's very, it's very immature, and and I think it, a lot of work is required to ensure that it can be an effective source of of, of control and, and transfer of risk before it can be made uh, regulatory. So I saw a company offering uh, £20,000 of, of free cyber insurance for anybody that uh, had cyber essentials, um, which as much as uh, I'm an advocate of the NCSC cyber essentials, um, it is a, a self-assessment questionnaire. And, and what does £20,000 actually mean in, term, in terms of security cover? Um, I've seen other companies, like you say, Mark, that, that are uh, covering GDPR fines, which is simply... Uh, how do you quantify that in in a, a scheme that's only been around for for two years from a regulatory body? Um, how do they know what those fines are going to look like? How can they they actually give you premiums around that? And I think that's that's one of the big issues that when talking to insurance companies, they don't have a way of quantifying the risk right now because the data isn't old enough. They don't have a way of putting the metrics in place to to put that. Um, actuarian hat on and, and, and actually see what the risk is versus the premium itself. Can we draw it back to um, cars? Can I get insurance that'll pay my speeding fines for me? <laughs> if you can get GDPR <laughs> fines paid, then can I, can I insure my inability to drive? I think there have been quite a lot of legal discussions around are things like GDPR fines insurable. It comes yeah. down to negligence, right? If you're, if, you're, if you're negligent, your insurance won't pay out and the person, that's why you have fully comp insurance. So you're I have to have, well, I don't have to have, but I, if I'm sensible, I have fully comprehensive car insurance. So if someone who isn't insured or someone who is negligent impacts me, and probably physically in a car, right, but cause an impact to me, I then can still get insured and and some recompense for it from my insurer because they, they've hedged against that fact as well. So so I think, you know, you may be getting to a world where it's it, it's that fully comp version of insurance, right? So I'm, I'm going to insure for damage from other people, but also from my own stupidity, um, but I don't know. I don't know if that works from a company perspective because you're you're insuring yourself against. I'd, I'd have to have insurance against companies being breached that I pay for, because a company can't really insure itself for doing stupid things. Because then you're basically saying I'm not going to bother doing this thing right, and I'm insuring myself against it. I don't. I don't know how that works logically. Yeah, I I'm think sure. um, without straying too far towards the I'm not a lawyer problem. Um, yeah. The, the reason that I the reason that I brought it up to kind of get people to think about it is. Uh, 
my understanding of a GDPR fine isn't necessarily where a breach occurred, but it was where a breach occurred due to negligence, due to actions that were supposed to have been taken that weren't taken, those kinds of things. So it isn't it isn't necessarily you know directly comparable to to car insurance, those kinds of things. But it but it is often a comparison that people want to draw, right? Because it's the it's the most common kind of insurance that people think about. But maybe yeah. it doesn't maybe it doesn't line up very well. No, I just think for me, it's it's it, as soon as you get into the point where you're insuring yourself against being fined from you not doing something right. Yeah. If you're just gonna get giving yourself a get out of jail free card, and I don't know how an insurer would insure that. Yeah. Without going no way. But I'd yeah, love like to, you... I'd love to get a lawyer on on the line and and uh, have a <laughs> podcast episode where we answer questions. But I imagine from from the legal aspect, there's very much uh, an aspect of well, it depends. I imagine you need, need a longer podcast if lawyers start talking. <laughs> <laughs> more expensive and it'll cost us too much <laughs> yeah so yes it's definitely an interesting field so cyber insurance isn't isn't going to serve us all is the feeling that i'm getting from the room there what what will serve us all then is this is the the situation that we've, we've felt recently just a a problem due to not enough business continuity planning or or is there something else missing that we haven't brought up yet well for me it feels a little bit akin to why we moan about kind of why in in england if there's a bit of snow things grind to a halt right so it's the investment versus risk so it comes back to the risk assessment piece again doesn't it so if it costs you you know x millions to be able to be prepared for a certain thing happening and that thing happening only happens once every x x years that means that yearly cost of being prepared for it outweighs the the impact of it happening you know it's not necessarily being badly prepared it's being appropriately prepared you know in, in canada they've got great ways of dealing with snow because they have massive snow every year in the uk we don't have great ways of dealing with snow because we get like maybe a day every year or two or whatever so um i think you have to look at the the kind of what's the cost of mitigating a risk versus how likely it is to happen to understand if people were appropriately prepared um for something like this yeah i think that um organizations will need to take uh need to pay real clear attention to the way in which we come out of the lockdown and the way in which the services sector in particular is going to adapt and as i mentioned at the start of the podcast um how they regain the trust of the consumers because if organizations take better care of us as consumers and as i talked about earlier you know travel um uh, entertainment venues all, all that kind of stuff then i think you know from an insurance perspective and from a risk perspective and assessing the likelihood organizations might take the view that actually because we've changed our culture now with regards to pandemic in particular then potentially the likelihood of such an impact is not going to be as big in the future but that all depends on whether or not us as a nation and, and as, as, a, as a global entity, I guess, you know, can consider uh, this is something that is serious moving forward, as they have done in, in China, which is, you know, which is why their culture encourages them to, to wear face masks as a behavioural thing. So we, we definitely need to pay attention to it. And, um, and, and I think, you know, as I say, that likelihood might change in the future. Just going to say that there's probably a tipping point, isn't there? Just following up from what Mark said, that you've got to assess where the the risk versus reward slash investment sits. And I've worked with multiple organisations that, say, for example, they had lots and lots of boxes, systems, whatever, websites. They'd test everything, but actually the strategy was completely wrong because they just tested everything. Um, they weren't actually understanding the test results they weren't actually realizing what that meant as a, as a longer term strategy where organizations now can can take a step back and actually have a look at things and plan properly where is that tipping point as to that risk is is massive but so unlikely that at least i've considered it i can i can move on to the more likely risks that might not cause 
as big an impact. But Kevin, you said before, if those four, five, six risks were strung together, our business has a problem. And I think now is probably the time. One of the things that I've, I've seen more recently is people not certainly not considering cyber as, as the priority. I actually think it, it definitely has to be right now because there are more and more and more high and low sophisticated attacks that are going to organizations that essentially it's a global problem it's a global pandemic but it it also means the cyber problem becomes a, a much more global issue i think we need to recognize also um sean that that actually in the context of businesses restarting uh, their sole focus is going to be things like getting that revenue back um paying off their loans um getting all their workers um back to, to full operating capability. And I actually think that whilst you're absolutely correct, it is more important than ever. I also think there's a risk that cybersecurity will not be top of the pile in that, in that back to work conversation. Yeah. And I think as professionals, we, we really need to think about the way in which we engage with the business and continue that theme of we can help you get back to work quickly. We can help you generate that revenue if you just give us a little bit of slack and maybe a little bit of budget um, uh, to ensure that you're secure in your operations when you come back. Because the last thing you want is to get back online, uh, get reopened again and get hit by a cyber attack. So there's, a, there's an opportunity and a risk there that we definitely need to consider. Exactly. I guess if, if this does lead to people being more agile and more flexible in their approach to working, I guess we end up being better prepared for things anyway, right? Because we're able to be more agile in how we work. So the more flexible you are, the more different locations you can work from, the more easily it is to securely do you know, all the things you need from, from anywhere, I guess, it's and do it securely. You are better able to handle things like office closures and other dramatic changes because you're already kind of flexible and agile in, in your approach. So hopefully it could lead to you know, inadvertently people becoming better prepared for things like this without them actually doing any any prep. I think it does make sense when you think of things like data breaches and organizations working through data breaches. So, you know, if if you've worked on several breaches before, you know, if you've done um, incident response work, um, the, the kind of duress, your kind of stress levels tend to lower because, you know, you've experienced a lot of these things before. So I think on the other side of this, where, where organizations start, start reopening, I think you're absolutely right. A lot of people might be taking the stance of, if we have to work from home for a while, if we have to allow more flexible working, it's less of a problem because we've done it before. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that um, so we've been working with a client recently and maybe two and a half years ago, they implemented uh, an IT solution for the end user desktop, uh, for the laptops and, and everybody, they, so they got rid of desktops. Uh, everybody has laptops and essentially um, everybody's been working from home for the last few years, as far as the technology is concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, it just so happens they've been sat in the office. But as far as the, the, the end user device is concerned, it, it doesn't really care where it is. It's as safe and secure um, on the open internet as it is uh, sat in the office. And so I think those kind of technological strategy decisions um, are going to be really important moving forward to make organisations resilient in the future. So all in all, hopefully, some you know, whilst it's been a massively bad thing in many ways, it could lead to some forced improvements in business process and, and agility and, and how we deal with risk and stuff in the future. Absolutely agree with that, yeah. Improvements in process and ways of working and things at, that, at the other side. I think we can use this opportunity, absolutely, to, to look at the ways in which we can improve, improve sorry, for the next you know, five to ten years, think about our technology strategy. 
Think about our ways of working. Think about our business and security strategy as, as one. You know, think about our systems. Think about the insurance, uh, the assurance that we've got over the configuration and the design, how we're operating them and how we're maintaining them. You know, think about the, the security awareness strategy for our people. Think about their well-being as well. It, it's something that, that organizations have had to massively think about um, in, in ways that they hadn't previously considered. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's a good opportunity to, to reflect and think about those things to make us more resilient in the future. If we think of the bigger picture, you know, the whole nation has become uh, a little bit more resilient. I think we, we've all done as we're told as well. I think we've kept our own personal security and we can take that into the workforce. But the, I think there's also some, some positives. Uh, I'm never going to say this pandemic is, is a positive thing, but if there's any positives to come out of it, then I think the, the cyber community in particular has really, really been impressive in how they've all come together and started to share ideas and how do we um, mitigate where these new attack vectors are going to appear and, and predicting where we can support that and, and how we support it. So I, I just think in terms of a positive to end on, from, from my perspective, I just think the cyber community is awesome. So I have a, a question and um, with, with us talking about companies dealing with everybody working remotely, be that uh, working from home, maybe in the future working from public spaces, um, or, or as you said there, Mark, from the technology's point of view, working remotely, but maybe being in the same geographic area. Are we not talking about zero trust in this context? Yeah, if, if we're going to use a term which I think is still ill-defined and, and, and um, difficult to understand sometimes and, and often has different meanings, but, but zero trust is, is akin to having a, a laptop or a device or a phone and allowing it to to trust only itself and its target system, be that a cloud service or whatever. And uh, it was many, many years ago now, somebody might be able to remind me when the Jericho Forum was was conceived, they were talking about zero trust in their own way back then. You know, the laptop looks at, uh, after itself. It doesn't matter whether it's in a, a secure office location or uh, an internet cafe in, um, I don't know, China. Um, it, it's just as safe anywhere. And I think that that inherently makes the infrastructure more resilient. As I said before, you know, the company I've been working with were able to, uh, they implemented this two and a half years ago, and they're able to overnight send 4,000 staff at home. And that's a, a massive success. And all the organization had to worry about was how their staff were going to work from home physically and, you know, their well-being. The technology was just not an issue for them whatsoever. So um, so I think it's something that definitely needs to be thought about. On that point, though, zero trust is a very old term. Well, whilst maybe um, ill-defined and maybe some people who are even listening have, have never heard it outside of this context, but I mean, zero trust was coined a decade ago, something like that. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and now we're hearing organizations still haven't implemented it. Does that mean it's challenging or does that mean that maybe it's less less than ideal? Um, I think it's one of those kind of kind of marketing terms that is a great concept. Um, you know, it basically, it's not saying zero trust. It's saying constantly check how much you trust. But that's not quite as catchy, right? So it's basically, for me, the concept <laughs> is every every action that a user or a component or a system or a computer or whatever it is you're looking at is trying to do, you're doing checks on it fairly continuously to say, do I trust you to perform this action? Do I trust you to connect to me? Do I trust you to see this data? Do I trust you to update this data? Whatever it happens to be. Um, and then obviously from the other side, there's some really interesting privacy discussions around how I can then only share just the minimum amount of information to get the right level of trust. Um, but that's kind of, that's what it is for me anyway. Um, and I think technology has been catching up with the concept. So I think there is now 
a lot of companies you know doing you know various things that enable us to do that more constant checking and more constant verification and moving away from authentication being a black white yes no answer to that kind of grayscale of do i know enough about you to trust you to do this not am i a thousand percent happy that you are dave it's do i trust that you're dave enough to do this action that, that you should be allowed to do so so i think it's a the concept is good. I think the marketing buzzword is terrible because it's exactly not zero trust. It's constantly verifying trust. So yeah, I hate the term because it's, it's garbage. But but fundamentally, the concept of verifying trust constantly, I think, is a great concept. And I think technology is catching up with that to allow us to deploy things that do that constant verification in a fairly seamless manner um, that isn't completely intrusive to how people work, which is why it's getting more more traction now. Steps off soapbox. <laughs> that wasn't. That didn't go as badly oh. as I as I thought it was going to do. I thought I thought we we're going to get like Kev versus Mark there, but it sounds like the the idea in principle is good. But as with a lot of security things, sometimes the marketing department gets ahead of the technology. Yeah, and we, you, I think you can. I think you often find that there'll be, be people like myself and Mark, or whatever, will violently agree that something's a good idea. We may disagree on how to describe it or you know certain concepts, but but the the fundamental of it, I think, you know, we'll, we'll probably both agree that it's a good a good thing to be doing, however you describe it. Absolutely, I think I think I I had a bit of a baptism baptism of fire when I I was um, I was exposed to a client that were was using this thing called microservices in the cloud and it, and it kind of like I was like I've never come across it before and maybe this was eighteen months ago and I thought to myself right, how am I going to assess the security of this solution and okay quite fine uh, so you're using this thing called microservices show me where the firewalls are and I'm like oh. Don't want to like it's just application components talking to application components. It uses a strategy of trust that allows these components to communicate on very specific commands and they only trust each other. Great, okay. And it took me a while, but actually it's um, it's brilliant, right? And it reduces the complexity of the infrastructure significantly. So I think in whichever guise that it's used or however it's termed, that, that methodology of, of absolute, well, absolute trust, but as much trust as you can get out of uh, the technology without overcomplicating it is absolutely uh, the correct thing to do. So, well, that sounds like uh, a good place to leave it then. Before I cut us off though, did anyone have any last minute things they wanted to, to raise? Any kind of uh, summary points they want to bring out? Um, so for me, I guess like it, it's the positives of this, right? So we've all you know, there's a lot of things that have happened, but the outcomes of better working environments, more flexible working environments, more secure remote working, security wanting to engage more with the organisation and around how we work remotely safely, those kind of things are all going to be positives from this. So I think it could lead to some some really positive changes in many people's working environments. Um, and as a slight aside. The thing I really think could be interesting is if more people work from home and spend more time in their local towns, is it going to revitalize local towns and local high streets and, and communities where currently all of the people who earn most of the money go off to London or, or name your big city um, rather than spend time at home? Whereas now, if you spend kind of three or four days a week more at home, you might be much more passionate about having you know, a community at home. I know, I know the street I'm on, we're all on a WhatsApp chat now for, for kind of what's going on. Does people need any help? Um, where can I buy eggs or whatever, that kind of thing. So it's already improving our local community. Um, so kind of long may that continue and, and can we have better working environments and improve local communities and more local business and, and better high streets and all of that nice stuff as well. So so I think I'm relentlessly hopeful and positive about these things. And I, I hope a lot of positive comes out of this. Um, and that although it's been a terrible you know, ordeal for many people, that, that we end up with a kind of better society and better working environments as a result. 
I agree with that. Um, I, I think the the economic opportunities are, are, are huge. You know, for example, um, there's a lot of discussion, or has been a lot of discussion around you know HS2 and the, the the way in which that will positively impact the the northern powerhouse. And uh, we're not going to talk about that, obviously. But actually, it should make companies think a lot more about how they operate their services, where they operate them from, the flexibility of home working, the flexibility in their staff, the well-being of their staff. And absolutely, I, th- I think, you know, it could really have a positive effect on, on the UK economy. I'd echo both of those uh, sentiments, certainly. I mean, just uh, I hope everyone stays stays well, like Kev said. Some positives for, for work-life balance, for uh, seeing your children grow up, which I used to have to commute perhaps two and a half hours a day, some days, um, five hours if I was going to London. So I think there's there's a lot of um, family benefits. Uh, if nothing else, let's, let's take some positives from it. And uh, yes, yeah, stay safe, everyone. Thank you.